and welcome to episode 12 of the Beer and Bible Podcast. I'm Paul. I'm Dan. And we are going to be discussing something extremely interesting today. Yeah. The, the gospel according to Judas. We're going to be looking at the person of Judas. We've been looking at doing different character studies. We did Jonah. We did uh, David a little bit. Might have the guy back, Mike back soon Yeah. Um, to discuss more about David. But we did Abraham. Yep. Yeah, this is a two-parter. Yeah. We're setting that up at the beginning instead of the end, deciding this is a two-parter. Yep. Um, so Judas, who is he? What is he? Why did he do what he did? Yeah, was he a greedy man? Was he Jesus' closest friend? Was he a secret Sakari assassin? He's a secret agent. He like- yeah. Or uh, does his name just mean the man from Kerioth? And then we're going to dive into some stuff like predestined. Was he, was he, did he have to do it? Maybe tackle some free will for Dean for a few minutes. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see if we get into that. I, I think letting the story speak for itself will both baffle us and test us to, to wrestle with it a little bit. So to start off, mm-hmm. start off with, for those of the, who are not familiar with the Bible in general, who mm-hmm. is Judas? I think... Strangely, of all the characters we've done, Judas is probably the one that everybody knows. His name is eternally equated with betrayal. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Judas betrays Jesus. And depending on which gospel narrative you're familiar with, um, that betrayal takes on varying forms, which we're going to end up going through um, all the Judas passages. We're going to see an evolution of the representation of Judas in the Gospels. The way his character develops over time from the early Gospels to the later written Gospels. So Judas Judas is one of the twelve. Yep. He's one of the twelve disciples, one of Jesus' closest friends. Um, I incorporate Judas a lot into um, communion when we do communion here at church. Just a reminder that at the table, everybody's welcome, even no matter what your perspective of Judas. He had communion, he had the Last Supper with Jesus. Jesus welcomed him there. We're going to have an interesting point yeah. uh, concerning Judas's Last Supper, Supper with Jesus <laughs> in the Gospel of John. It's a little weird, but yeah, we'll, we'll have interesting things to say. So you want to dive into it? Sure. Um, so really, uh, in recent history, um, if you watch Discovery Channel a lot, uh, there was a text called the Gospel of Judas that surfaced in the Antiquities Market. So all these old writings, somebody will find a jar in the Middle East and then they'll try and sell this on the black market because they don't want to donate it to a museum. Why make money? Yep. So this Gospel of Judas was one such document. It surfaced and was being sold in the antiquities market and it is presumed to be authentic dating back to the first 150, like 170 AD, I believe. And it is a gospel from the perspective of Judas being actually on the inside. Like, he knows what Jesus is up to. Kind of like Jesus' special secret friend. Yep. And Judas is the only one that sees that Jesus is supposed to die for everybody's sins. And so he um, selflessly offers to be the one to betray Jesus, to set it up so that Jesus can have his moment of glory on the cross. Um, which is both, if you, well, 
if you're an evangelical, it's kind of like, well, that is kind of what happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, whether he knew or wanted to be that person or not, that's the role he served. And if you're an atheist, you might just say that's kind of sick and demented. Demented, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're going to get into that a little bit, but um, I want to start off by saying that that's not our view, um, the whole insider bit. Uh, and then I want us to go through each gospel and just see what the Bible says about Judas and his interaction. So in the Gospel of Mark, which Wait, we're not it, with Matthew? No, uh, <laughs> Matthew comes after Mark in the, in the time in which it's, it's written. written yeah. So it's it's generally accepted that Mar- Mark is the oldest gospel or the first one to be written. Yeah, and then it gets a little more fuzzy. Like more people debate. Um, does Matthew come next, or is Matthew actually a really late gospel? Um, I lean towards Matthew being the next gospel. Um, And I'll go ahead and throw this out there. I believe all of them were written before 70 AD, because in 70 AD, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed, and I think that they might have mentioned that. Might have included that. It might have been important (laughs) to throw into the Gospels if that had happened, because then they could have rubbed it in your face and said, look, Jesus predicted the temple would be destroyed. It was. Yeah, so when we say late Gospel, we don't mean like some... Uh, about 180 yeah. or... No, I'm saying within the first 50 years after Jesus, or not even 50, the first 30, uh, 30 years after yeah. Jesus, I think these were written. But I do think that Mark was written first, and people kind of took his base narrative, and then at least the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, yeah. I think they all follow kind of the same timeline set out and They kind Mark. of expanded on his yep. narrative. So. Mm-hmm. So, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, is where we begin uh, reading about Judas. And it says this. This is verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that being Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. I'm never a fan of this story, (laughs) this part, because I kind of side at, like, first reaction with the disciples. Like, she just broke a whole bunch of expensive perfume all over you, which she could have sold it and fed poor. 
It's about $33,000 worth of perfume in U.S. currency. That's a lot of money. Yeah. It could feed a lot of people. Yes, it could. Um, and Jesus defends her. Yeah. And okay. it, not only does he defend her, he says that her story, what she's done, is a key portion of the gospel. Yeah. That wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole earth, this story will be told in conjunction with the gospel. What a waste of money. <laughs> well, the thing is, maybe we're not telling the correct gospel because I haven't heard any preachers bring this up when they tell the gospel. Yeah, you, you don't, it's not like on a... As you're getting ready for Good Friday, you're like, and remember this woman who broke the alabaster ointments and yep. perfume all over Jesus and anointed him. Yep. It's usually skipped over. I don't think I've ever heard her used in conjunction with the gospel in a church service. The gospel in general, no. No, because we have a very small idea of what the gospel is. Yes. So, well, maybe not we, but, but I mean people. People in general. Yeah. yeah general. The Western church in general. So, a couple things I want to point out that are interesting about Mark's um, Mark's passage here. One is that they are in the house of Simon the leper during a feast time. Can you see a problem with that? Yeah, they're, they're unclean currently. They are part- they're, they're during the feast, and they are with somebody who makes them unclean. Mm-hmm. Um, reclining at the table with them, eating with them. So technically, they're unable to go into the temple and participate, participate. which could have been why Judas was upset to begin with. I mean, he's already irritated that Jesus just made him ceremonially unclean by saying, hey, let's go have dinner at this leper's house. (laughs) Um, The other thing that may, um, may have also made him mad is if Judas is at all a social revolutionary following Jesus, then he wants to see all of Jesus' talk about blessed are the poor and taking care of the poor. And, like, this seems to fly in the face of that. Here, Jesus has $33,000 of perfume poured on him. And he's accepting it and okay with it and defending it. Yeah. So... It's no big secret that from here Judas decides to go out and betray him. Well, it goes on, and it says like Judas. Judas goes to the chief priests and order to mm-hmm. betray him. Yep. it's kind of like the last straw. That mm-hmm. like Judas like this is maybe he isn't who I'm thinking he is. Yeah, maybe this isn't the Messiah, and and it can go into. I mean, like you said, it flies in the face of what Jesus has been teaching. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, there's this contradiction. Yep, and. So how do you feel about that contradiction, Dan? I'm okay with it because, um, and I think I say this later in the notes, but we'll go ahead and say it now since we're on it. Um, If Judas is looking for the Messiah, the king, well, Jesus is being anointed here. Um, He's being anointed before he goes into Jerusalem. Yeah. So this is actually a high moment in the narrative of Jesus becoming king over all the earth on earth. Yeah. Not just because God said so from heaven, but Jesus is actually being anointed as the next king. So you, you are getting back like a Samuel anointing yes, Saul. Yes, exactly. This is a very important moment. Um, and then Jesus turns it around, and instead of saying, she's anointing me to become king, 
he says she's anointing me for burial. So there's there's a whole twist there, but I think we can't overlook the fact that he is being anointed and then he's the triumphal entry is coming. Like if we read the Gospel of John, he's going to march into Israel, yeah. um, which was essentially claiming kingship. Yeah. So uh, Mark 14, verses 17 through 21 says... And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at table and eating. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful, and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It's a little harsh. Yeah, yeah, hard. Be so, so you have this picture here because this is a continuation of the, of the uh, same story. Yeah, and they're they're now at the Last Supper. Mm -hmm. and they're reclined in their table, and he's telling them, "Hey." Out of all my best buds around here, one of you is going to betray me. Mm -hmm. And they obviously are arguing, well, who is it going to be? Like, they don't know. Like that, that, It's kind of like a reflection of their own hearts. If they don't know, mm -hmm. they're not going to do it. Yep. So. And then comes the question, is Judas actually dipping the bread into the bowl with Jesus at the same time? It's always Or is it that, that is. everybody, or yeah. like... So there's a restaurant in Grand Rapids called Little Africa, yeah. and you eat everything with your hands, and there's shared bowls and stuff like that. Um, people need to realize that everybody was eating out of the same bowl. Yeah. It could have been coincidental, and Judas may have been eating, dipping at the same time as Jesus, but they're all eating from the same bowl. Yeah. So it's not a dead giveaway yet. Mark leaves it very open-ended. It's somebody that we're eating with. It's somebody here in this room. It's somebody that is eating at this very table. So, so the, the general like thing that I've heard from the pulpit and different Bible studies before has always been, well, this is the moment where Judas and Jesus, their, their bread touches in the same bowl, and Jesus is saying, oh, you're the one that's betraying me. And you would argue more, this is a cultural thing that's happening. We're all sitting around, they're all sitting around the table, they all yeah. have the same bowl, eating out the same bowl, yep. dipping their non-bread or whatever well, bread that, in there. And eating, and his mm -hmm. Jesus is saying, it, "It's one of you." I'm just not. I'm not telling you who it is, mm -hmm. but one of our close friends around here is going to betray yeah. me. Well, notice it says they're reclining at the table. Mm -hmm. So in this time period, you you lay down and you eat, and you kind of lay down um, with your feet out away from the table, yep. and so you'll have somebody to your back that is kind of shoulder to shoulder with you, and then usually you're talking. To somebody who's laying on their opposite side sitting next to you and with your elbow you kind of prop yourself up and with yep. your free hand you grab food so you know we could argue how many people are actually at the table but jesus is actually like narrowing down to the people that are closest to him it's somebody within reach of where i'm yeah. dipping my bread um, so if it was a long table like in the last supper picture <laughs> um which they're all sitting i believe which yeah. is terribly historically inaccurate but jesus is so he's saying my killer my betrayer is within arm's reach yeah. because whoever it is i could reach out and touch and it's almost like we read the i we know that it's judas mm -hmm. because we find in this in the scripture beforehand 
that Judas has betrayed him. Mm-hmm. We know the story, and then we superimpose our understanding of everything onto this. Yeah, and we paint that picture of Jesus, Jesus and Judas sharing yep. a bowl. Yeah. Yeah, we do a not lot that of kind of bowl. Yeah, not that kind of bowl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not that kind of bowl. <laughs> it's amazing okay. how we do that, though. We do superimpose our understanding of the what yep. our understanding of the story into it as well. Yeah. So then there's the garden in Mark fourteen forty three through fifty. And it says this, um, and immediately while he was still speaking, speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as a sorry, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left and they all left him and fled. Yeah. That's one thing that I, once I started trying to think critically about this, it's like, why the garden? You know, why does this all end up coming to a, you know, why is he rested in the garden? Well, I, if you go back to, to the beginning of Mark 14, it says mm-hmm. um, they, they're doing it during the feast and they didn't want to up, uproar of the people. Yeah. So doing it in the garden at night, I'm assuming mm-hmm. I read that, um, it's away from everybody else. Mm-hmm. They're 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 trying to not cause an uprising during the festival. Yeah, because the uprising would also bring the Romans out as well. Yeah, which is a big deal now. You know they don't want to cause an uprising, but then, you know, fast forward. Spoiler alert: when Jesus is standing trial and they bring him out and ask which Messiah they would like released to them, is it going to be Barabbas or Jesus? The crowds are obviously in uproar against Jesus. Yeah, and they're picking so the Bible. So it is interesting that yeah. that's the reason they don't want to do it, but then they have full crowd support when it comes time to actually the making the call. Yeah. yeah. So uh, all of the other Gospels will follow Mark's general timeline, mm-hmm. but they add different details, and they they throw different lenses on it, almost as if you're wearing different color sunglasses, they're sh- trying to illuminate different areas of the story. So, but we don't get much of a development of Judas as a character in Mark. No, no, it's very abstract, vague. He is the betray- he is the betrayer, but it's just I don't know. There's not a whole lot of development. There's no nuance to his character. And we read again. We read into it again. We're, if we go back to Mark fourteen. We understand that Judas might have been in charge of the purse, but in Mark 14, it doesn't really say that. It just says that they were all angry about this. Yeah, if you're just reading uh, Mark, then you don't know that Judas is in charge of money. Yeah. Because it's not mentioned. Um, He's just a very bare bones, this guy betrayed Jesus, pretty much. Yeah. Almost uh, assuming maybe the original audience knew more. Either assuming they knew more or that's all there was to tell. Yeah. 
I mean, this guy betrayed Jesus and then he disappeared. I mean, after the betrayal scene in the garden, Mark doesn't tell us anything else about Judas. He's gone. Yeah, he's gone. So we're left with this narrative of this guy that followed Jesus for up to three years betrays him and then disappears without a trace. Almost like he's not that big of a character in this narrative. We need to resist the urge to just go to the next gospel and say, well, no, wait, I know what happened to Judas. (laughs) You know, we can't do that because it is actually being unfaithful to the Bible. Yeah. When you read the Bible, you need to take each book in stride and enjoy it and take a walk away with the story that it has presented you with. Yeah. It's actually very dishonoring to the Bible to just say, well, I have an answer for that. Because this author clearly wanted us to wrestle with it and think about it. Yeah. Because like you said, after the betrayal, we don't hear about Judas at all for the rest of Mark. Yep. And just and we took all his, jumped, he took his money and left. Yeah, we all think, we all go, oh, well, he hung himself on a tree or whatever. Yep. We jump all the way to, to Luke and, and Acts and all that. And yep. the, the author of Mark is, yeah, this, this Judas guy yep. betrayed Jesus, yep. one of his good close friends. We really need to work on that um, as Christians is enjoy the Bible. You yeah. know, take this story and let it come to a close. Let Mark come to a close without any answer as to where Judas ended up. And it's not the focal point. No, it's yeah. not. But at the same time, the the ambiguity or the mystery is part of what makes the Bible not only God-inspired reading, but good literature. Yeah. You know, you're left with all these questions. So um, Matthew adds some interesting details. So... Um, One thing we're going to see as we go through these other Gospels is the later the date of the Gospel, the more ramped up Judas's character becomes. Yeah. So there's obviously an obsession with this narrative this last Holy Week and the good and evil battle that plays out, in a sense. And then with Matthew and Mark, we have that the first part of Matthew kind of lines up with Mark when it comes to the story. And then it gets more detailed when we get to the Mm -hmm. garden. Yep. So go ahead um, do you want to read it? Sure. This okay. is Matthew 24, um, 47 through 50. Are we doing ESV today as well? 27? 47? 47 oh, through yeah. 50. Sorry. Yeah. Matthew chapter 27, verses 47 through 50. Yep. And um, it says this. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great cloud with swords, crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, sees him. And when he came to Jesus at, one, at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So we have a very close resemblance at the beginning of that story. Yep. I mean, talk about swords and clubs and then the dialogue is slightly changed. Yeah. And actually, the reason we skipped right to the garden scene is because the Last Supper scene and the um, the anointing scene, all of those other scenes play out nearly identical word for word to the Mark yeah. passage. And then all of a sudden we get here and there's this one line dropped in there that is like a bombshell. Friend, do what you came to do. Yeah. Why does Jesus say that? Did Mark have, like, hard of hearing? He didn't hear that? Mark Mark (laughs) missed that part. He was like, oh, no, the torches and the the clubs and swords. Um, So why is that added in? 
It's a good question. That's something we're supposed to wrestle with. Why would Jesus say to him? You know, and the other thing, too, is he's calling him rabbi, or as you um, slipped the first time and said the correct word, rabbi. Um, he's saying teacher. Yeah. Greetings, my teacher. So he's still showing respect and yep. affection towards Jesus. Yes. Which then kind of like you talked about, we talked about the beginning, kind of maybe the secret between Jesus and Judas, this some of that implication when you read yep. into it now. And this line is where that type of thinking originates. Yeah. Because Judas respects him by calling him rabbi, mm-hmm. and Jesus responds by calling him friend. Yeah. Kind of like, all right, you've come to do what you need to do. Let's get this done with. You've done your part. Yep. So, yeah, interesting that Matthew throws that change in there. Matthew has another very big narrative plot twist that none of the other Gospels have. Um, Matthew is the only one that gives us um, a repentant Judas. So Mark gives us a disappearing Judas. Yeah. And Matthew gives us a repentant Judas. Okay. Yeah. So in Matthew 28... Verses 3 through 10, it says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, which literally means to repent. He repented and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. And the elders said, and he brought it back to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went, and he hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel, and they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what the... what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price on on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now this is like a bombshell of nuance and uh, hyperlinks, biblical hyperlinks. (laughs) So there's this moment First of all, we need to remember something because it's going to change later in another gospel. Who buys the field with the money? Um, here it says the um, elders and the chief priests. The elders and the chief priests buy a field. And they have that conflict where if we can't take this money, what should we do with it? Yeah. So, so there's context to it. It's not yeah. just a slip. So the, there's context as to why the priests are the ones buying the field. Okay, we just need to remember that for in like 20 minutes remember when we that get for to like Luke. 20 minutes. <laughs> yep. So, and then there's this weird moment where he apparently, although I don't think it's a mistake, but he misquotes and says he attributes this quote to Jeremiah, but it's actually from the book of Zechariah. Oh. So the quote that he says, and thus was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So here's Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. So they weighed for me the price, 30 pieces of silver. 
And the Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at by them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and I cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. So here in Zechariah, we have this moment where people are essentially selling each other. And that's something you see in the prophets very often. They're selling themselves and their people, brothers and sisters. Um, We were talking in Amos. They say you'd sell even your own grandmother Grandmother. into slavery. So the, the goodly price of 30 pieces of silver, that's what a slave costs if you go back to Exodus. Yeah. And uh, Deuteronomy. So, like, the price set for selling someone is 30 pieces of silver. So, Jeremiah actually gets sold for 30 pieces of silver. And when he's given the money, he throws it into the po- into the house of the Lord to the potter who makes the vessels. Yeah. Um, which is a whole rabbit hole that we don't have time <laughs> to go down. But the point is, you know, why would Matthew say that Jeremiah said this? It's a really interesting study, one yeah. that we don't have time for. We don't for. have time for that. Well, I'm, now I'm trying to rack my mind, like, why? That, that'll be a part three. There is a story with Jeremiah and a potter. And there's a Jeremiah in a field as well. Yep, and a field. So, so there, there's links. But again, it just shows that the Bible is so rich with depth. And, you know, by saying that Jeremiah said this, Matthew, if he's worth his salt as a scholar, (laughs) knows that Jeremiah didn't say it, but he's linking us to two different stories. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's unique. It's not a mistake. So you you would say it's not a mistake. It's not a mistake. It's very artfully crafted midrash. So midrash is where you, like, triangulate a point by picking two other points, and then you're, so you have triangulation. You have three points in scripture that you're linking and they seem unrelated, and by pulling them together, you create a new meaning or a new way of understanding those texts. And Midrash was something that they did, not not necessarily for fun, but it was an exercise. Mm-hmm. It was an exercise in understanding the scriptures and being able to pull them together mm-hmm. to create a cohesive new understanding of what God may or may not be doing. Yep. It was a puzzle. Yeah. It's yeah. something we don't do anymore. Right. Because we we take everything very linear and very literal instead of literature. And this is Matthew's play on literature. Yeah. So in literature, we have um, books that are very... um, I can't remember that word for it right now. But we have books like um, Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. Or um, a book like The Lord of the Rings where the characters are deep and mysterious and a lot of details are left out. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, which there's a great series, it's, well, I shouldn't say it's great. It's kind of embarrassing to say it's great. But I got hooked on The Hunger Games. Yeah. So shallow writing. Good story. I enjoyed it. It was like eating candy for days. Yeah. But super shallow writing when it came to character development. Um. Again, great narrative, great story, super simple characters. Yeah. And the depth of a character is what determines the depth of the literature. Yeah. And one thing that we find from the Bible is that it's written with very deep characters that leave a lot of mystery and a lot of the interpretation to us. So it's something that we should appreciate, not feel like we need to fix it all the time. Yeah. So it's not going back and saying, well, we interpreted that wrong, we translated it wrong. I should say Zechariah. Mm-hmm. The, the author meant, Matthew meant. Yep. Jeremiah, because he's trying to link things together. Yep. 
that we did we don't we wouldn't link together if we weren't yep. if we, he did if he hadn't have said that. Yeah. So I take the stance that there's a triangulation happening here. Yeah. Um, other people would take the stance that uh, because Zechariah is a prophet, that you could, in a sense, reference all of the prophets by saying the name Jeremiah. So that's another take on it, is by saying Jeremiah, he just means the prophets have said this. So there's a couple ways of viewing it. But anyway, so, it's so an interesting rabbit hole that we did take time <laughs> on that we weren't supposed to. <laughs> so we have a developed, uh, we get a broader view of what people, how Judas is developing as a character yep. from Mark until, Ma- until Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have, like you said, he has that repentance. He says mm-hmm. that, hey, he changes his mind. Which kind of gives this idea that he had to make a decision at some point. It wasn't some secret plan maybe he had with Jesus. Mm-hmm. But it's this understanding of the decision that I made was wrong. Mm-hmm. I changed my mind, free will, yep. and here's the money back. Yeah. I like the Matthew account the most because it paints Judas in a light to where he can be redeemed. He's but human. He, yeah, he's more human than he is in the other Gospels. Yeah. He still goes and hangs himself, though. He's yeah. still riddled with guilt. So, uh, okay, we'll, we'll just throw this in there because it's interesting. So there's an early church movement, um, not early church, we'll say like middle, the Byzantine period, which is I think like 800 AD mm-hmm. to uh, 1400 AD, 1300 AD. So, yeah, not that late, 1200 AD. So anyway, those 400 years, the Byzantine period, um, there was actually teachers that taught that the reason Judas hangs himself is because he wants to get to Hades ahead of Jesus so that he can be there to greet him and apologize. That's twisted. Yeah, but it was taught by uh, one guy in around the 800 period, and then another guy picked it up and said, he's spot on. This is Judas um, showing his repentance. And, his and that was in like 1100 AD. He is repenting so much that he's willing to beat Jesus to Hades. Yes. So he can meet him there and say he's sorry. Yes. That's all kinds of screwed up in multiple levels. It is, yeah. But it makes but sense. A lot me. of the theology from the Byzantine period is screwed up <laughs> on multiple levels. <laughs> but it's interesting all the same. But, it's, in, but it's, it's also interesting the way that people, over time, the, the reading of Scripture has changed and the ideas that people pull out of Scripture mm-hmm evolves over time yeah something that we just said man that's messed up on multiple levels in the byzantine period they're like this this makes perfect sense he was so sorry Mm -hmm. that he was willing to endure hades to apologize yeah true repentance yeah it is interesting i came across that i had never heard that before uh this weekend when i was working on this so with luke it evolves even more Yep. And this and is where I get this, this is where it gets like I get frustrated with the story. Yeah. Well, because Luke, Luke He's a physician. Yeah, he's supposed to be the practical one. <laughs> yeah. He tells us at the beginning of the gospel, "I'm composing for you an orderly account of all the things that have happened." <laughs> he sounds very British when you say it that way. <laughs> he probably was early British. No, I mean, so the thing about Luke is we typically say, well, if you want to get the full story, go to Luke. You know, he's got the most details. But he takes the story in an interesting turn. And this will close our synoptic Gospels, the ones that have the same storyline. So by synoptic, we mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I like the one, what you said there where you said people put, will point people to Luke because it has more details, as if more details 
because it's more truth. Exactly. We think yep. the more details and facts we have, the closer we are to what really happened. Yep. But kind of like I think Mark's view is not that it might be closer. Mark's view makes for good dinner conversation. Yeah. There's a lot of unknowns. Yeah. So Luke chapter 22, uh, verses 3 through 6. six we'll start there. And this is, I'm reading this one because it's the one that annoys me the most. <laughs> then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. I hate that line. <laughs> who was um, of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So now we have the idea of why there's an absence. He's talking about he doesn't want to do it around a crowd here. Yep. Now. Mm-hmm. But it's that first line. Then Satan, Satan entered, entered into Judas. So now he's gone beyond just being the betrayer, just being a guy that takes off and disappears like in Mark. Or he's definitely different than the man who feels repentance and wants to take back the or bring the money back and yeah. undo it. In Matthew, he tries to undo the deal. Now Satan has entered into him. And the character of Satan is another podcast altogether. <clears throat> but this, we this should idea, do that. We should do that. Hey, this is how decisions are made. <laughs> <clears throat> we'll talk about Satan soon. So the idea of Satan entering Judas is people will argue, well, it's really, it's really a removing personal responsibility, mm-hmm. but it's also bringing it to a more cosmic battle between good and evil, between mm-hmm. Satan and God, and elevating, kind of Luke is elevating it to a spiritual level more than just this physical Judas who might be disheartened with what Jesus is doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I need to be careful what I say because I wrote a lot on this in the next episode, so <laughs> I'm not going to give... Spoiler alert, we're saving all the good stuff for next, next episode. Yeah. No, actually, so the point of this first one is to lay everything out for you. Yeah. Because we don't like to have curtains that hide certain details. I'm a big context person, so we're giving you the context. We're giving you all four Gospels, and then we're going to present a case for Judas and his Gospel in the next episode. In this Luke account, it's almost like the chief priests, the officers, and um, Judas are in cahoots together. Like he's saying, hey, I'm done with Jesus how much you're willing to give me and I'll tell you where he is when he's not around a crowd so you mm-hmm. don't make a scene and we'll work out all the details later. Yeah, I'd like to see the language of Matthew because in one of them it says that they offered to give him money. In this one it says they agreed to give him money. Yeah, It's almost like he shows up saying, all right, give me some money, I'll give you Jesus. Yeah. Um, so Luke 22, uh, verse 20 through 23, this is where they're eating at the dinner table. And this also ramps up significantly. This is the moments where you're like, wow, that escalated quickly. You know, if you're reading all these passages back to back, like we are. So it says, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, uh, he took the cup and he said, this cup that has poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. That is not that different from Mark's reading. 
And then he says, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which one of them it was going to or which one of them could it be who was going to do this. And this prompted an argument about who is the greatest, because that's what the <laughs> apostles did. So was it, it went immediately about... from who is going <laughs> who's gonna betray Jesus to well I'm better than you. Because obviously the one who's not the greatest is the one who's going to betray him. Mm-hmm. But uh, I like how, how all of a sudden Luke starts writing what we would consider like communion language all of a sudden. Like Mark and Matthew don't include what I would call communion language because it says, this cup that has been poured out for you mm-hmm. is a new covenant of my blood. That's part of why Luke's considered to be a later writing yeah. than like Mark and Matthew. Because he's kind of establishing theology along with, the, along with the narrative. He's using church language. Yeah. And we know that he's writing later because he's actually writing about Paul. Yeah. So we know that Luke is being written after... 55, 57 A.D. Because of the context that he puts into his Gospel of the Acts of the Apostles. Because they're together. Luke and Acts go together. Yeah. So, (laughs) sounds kind of like a charismatic Bible study. They're arguing about who's the holiest and the greatest. (laughs) Which is the opposite of a Calvinist Bible study where they all talk about who's the most depraved. Um, But then, uh, so the story continues on. Um, the garden scene is the same. It's identical to Matthew, only Jesus now asks the question when he approaches to kiss. Uh, Jesus says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Which he uses that title, the Son of Man, in there. Yeah. Which is to say, will you betray the Messiah? Because the, that Son of Man, which this gives a little away from next episode, but I don't care. Son of Man is a title from Daniel chapter 7 mm-hmm. that was like at the forefront of every Hebrew Jewish brain yeah. at this time. Everybody's waiting for the Son of Man to come on the clouds and Jesus says, will you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So for people who had, if, who heard that or read this, a picture is in their mind automatically of who Jesus is claiming to be. Yeah. He's claiming to be the Messiah, even though Judas might not believe it or yeah. is betraying him for whatever reasons. Jesus is saying, hey, I am the Messiah. Are you betraying me with this kiss? Yeah. It's presuming that Jesus is using Son of Man in the Daniel chapter 7 context yeah. rather than the Job context in which the Son of Man is no greater than a worm. <laughs> it's like it's like a maggot, yeah. <laughs> he says. So, Son of Man is a whole nother podcast. So, we just got another podcast. Satan, Son of Man. Yep. Predestination. Yep. The Son of Man develops over time. It's yeah. an idea that took hundreds of years for the Jews to develop. And when Jesus unloads the title Son of Man and refers to himself as the Son of Man, it is like taking hundreds of years of context and putting it into one powerful title. It's so cool, but also another rabbit hole we don't have time for. So in Acts, uh, because Luke also wrote Acts, they're actually not supposed to really be separated. It's like volume one, volume two. Yeah. So Acts chapter one. Says this. um, This is one uh, chapter one, verses 16 through 19. Yeah. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in his ministry. 
Now this man acquired a field with a reward for his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that field was called in their own language. I'm going to slaughter this. <laughs> Guess why he didn't want to read this one? Al-Kadama, that is, field of blood. That changes the story again. Who bought the field? Judas buys the field in this one. Yeah. So who really buys the field? And he trips and his guts fall out. <laughs> yeah, so he goes from like a repentant Judas who hangs himself and throws the money back to a Judas who's like, I'm going to buy a field and slips on something and is like mm-hmm. cut in half. Yeah, there's an ancient Christian tradition that became harder to say on my second pain and turtle hard cider. <laughs> there's a Christian tradition that he was actually ran over by a carriage or a cart, okay. like an ox cart. Yeah. So like he was working in his field and he um, he's just going about his business. You know, I'm Judas who betrayed the Messiah. I'm going to go plow a field now. And he gets plowed under and his guts spill out. So you, have, so you have two pictures of Judas between the Matthew mm-hmm. and the um, Acts or Luke. Yeah. And I should right. say that's not what Acts is saying. That's just a tradition. It's a tradition. Yeah. But but the difference is, I mean, it's you don't see a, a semblance of repentance. No, there's no harmonizing those two accounts. No. Because you could say, well, <laughs> he was hung and then his body fell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which there's an apologetist... Uh, who was it that I was reading? I, I can't remember his name, but there was a guy that was writing about this, and he says, well, it's very simple. You know, he hung himself, but he's such a coward, he couldn't even do that right. And so he cut himself down, and when he cut himself down, he fell onto a stick, and it caused his guts to fall out. That's a lot of poetic license. <laughs> talk about being unfaithful to the text. But talk about not being comfortable with with a contradiction or a contradiction, a conflict in story. Right. Yeah, so some people trying to be apologists and harmonize things actually do extreme damage to the text. Yeah, because there are there are parts of the scriptures that don't mm-hmm. harmonize, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. We get we we got to stop apologizing for the yeah for the um, the disharmony sometimes the disjointness yep. of the stories. Yeah, but the thing that so I, now we have Mark with the disappearing Judas. Yep. Matthew with the repentant Judas. Luke, Luke with the clumsy Judas that buys a field. <laughs> so what does John say about Judas? Oh, it gets more interesting. <laughs> yep. He becomes the most sinister. And we need to remind our readers, listeners, podcast parishioners, that John does not make any attempts to follow the storyline of the other three Gospels. Oh, he's out of order. Yeah. He is. He's out of order. He's adding context. John is the true theologian of these four Gospels, and everything he does is for a purpose, and it all has meaning. So where we have Luke adding a little bit of church language, yeah. we have John who's getting more theological. Mm-hmm. It's not about the narrative. It's not about being in order. It's about painting a picture of theology and, st- mm-hmm. and the person of Jesus. Yeah. Which is why a lot of, like, revival people tell you, go read the book of John first, because it paints the best picture. That's a terrible Jesus. idea. It is. <laughs> it's all out of order and mixed up. Honestly, I think if you want to, if you haven't read the Bible, or if you're wanting to get into it, I suggest reading 
Matthew first, which may come as a surprise to some people because it comes as a surprise to me. I would have said something else, but okay. yeah, I say to go to Matthew because there's insider language. Yeah, and I don't want you to just read it. I want you to say, well, why did they say that? Because the thing about Matthew is it's full of hyperlinks. So if you go to Wikipedia and you want to learn about something. There's all these links like, hey, I don't know what that name is. So you click on it, and then all of a sudden you you broaden your perspective of what the gospel is trying to say. Yeah. And so Matthew gives you this very broad picture if you follow the hyperlinks. So if you're serious about studying and reading. Matthew it is. Yeah. With hyperlinks. Yeah. If you're not, then Mark is the easiest to read. Yeah. So John chapter 6. Yep. Um, verses 70 through ooh, 70 through 71. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Oh, mm-hmm. gosh, Judas, you've <laughs> evolved a lot. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Mm-hmm. This is a good point to point out. Uh, good point to point out. Uh, so... Simon Iscariot is his father, mm-hmm. which it lends to the reasoning that that's how he got his name, why he's distinguished as Judas Iscariot. Because why wasn't he Judas of Simon? Judas Bar Simon? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Bar means son of. Son, I just yeah. threw that out there nonchalantly. But So um, names are really interesting in the Bible because there aren't last names. Yeah. So I've asked the question before of people, like, why does Judas have a last name? Just framing it in the wrong context to see what they say. And people are like, oh, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, it's heavily debated. There's a lot of reasons. Some people think that it means that he's part of the Sakari, which I mentioned in the opener. Yeah. The Sakari were a movement within messianic judaism so they were trying to bring about the time of the messiah they were like the zealots so they wanted to fight rome and win um think isis on steroids so uh it's possible that sicari and iscari iscariot sicari iscariot that there could be a link there so that's one theory and then also there's a theory that he's just named after his father and there's also the theory that he's just a man who came from Kerioth. So three, three leading reasons why he has, has a last name. Yeah. So with Mark, he disappears. We don't know yep. much about him. And then with Luke, we find that he is said to Satan is to enter him. Mm-hmm. And now with John, he is a devil. Not mm-hmm. the devil. He's a devil. Mm-hmm. John's we, about to take it to a whole nother yeah, level. Yeah, was weaving in theology here, which mm-hmm. one may or may not agree That's with. That's in the next episode. We're going to talk a lot about <laughs> the whole devil part. Maybe you'll be satisfied. Maybe you won't hate the Luke passage so much. <laughs> so John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came before, or came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now this is the first 
account to give her a name. Yeah, because in the uh, Mark account, we're not given who it is no. or anything like that. Yeah. No. And actually, in Christian tradition, if you read some of the early church father quotes, they call her a harlot. Yeah. Which we have no reason to believe that Mary, the sister of Martha, was a harlot. Yeah. Actually, contextually, Mary is the one that sits at the feet of Jesus and wants to learn in the earlier chapters. Yeah. So... Uh, Mary took, therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And here, so in every other account, it just said that one of the apostles or some of the apostles or someone objected to the action. But now... Uh, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, just throwing it in there to remind you, (laughs) said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she might be so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So this is the moment where this story takes on a whole other level because Judas is now named as the one that we just... There was an unknown disciple. And now we're putting a, a name to that face. Yeah. Luke is saying, or John is saying, hey, this is Judas. He doesn't even have pure intentions. Right. He doesn't really care for the poor. He just wants the yep. money himself. And not only is he a betrayer, but now he's a thief. And we're, we're adding more details. We've got Lazarus in here now, Martha in mm-hmm. here right now, Mary is in here now. We're in um, Mark's account, it was just Simon the leper's house. Mm-hmm. And the, the neat thing about the way this is worded is it says that they, um, so they gave a dinner for him. Mm-hmm. Like the meal was for Jesus, for, for people to come to Jesus. Yep. And now all of a sudden, Jesus does something that... Even I still find, find mm-hmm. some, at some point counterintuitive to what he's been teaching, mm-hmm. this idea of allowing a woman, not, be, not a woman, not, that, that's not the counterintuitive part, but the, the wasting of, of precious material. In the context, it is counterintuitive. You don't have a woman anoint your head with oil. You no, have a great prophet anoint yeah, you to become king. Yeah. So in the context, it is. Yeah. And again, he mentions that it's for his burial. Mm-hmm. It's not for his kingship. Yep. So there's the whole thief thing that surfaces here. And without giving too much of next week away, um, earlier in John, we have a parable about the Good Shepherd. Mm -hmm. And recently, um, I led a responsive reading small group on a passage in John where it talks about the Good Shepherd. And who is the other person sneaking into the sheep gate? The thief. Yeah. So all of a sudden there's a link to the thief language within yeah. John. Because John's the only one that accuses him of being a thief. Yeah. And there is context earlier about thieves and what they do to the sheep and how they're involved. Um, and I want to say it's John 10. So interesting subplot unfolding. And John likes to layer his narrative so that there's multiple things happening at yeah. once. So... Interesting rabbit hole that you can go down if you wish. But it's just interesting the way that through the scriptures, that as the scriptures get older, the narrative gets older, 
Judas becomes more complex. Not only more complex, but he becomes more devious, more evil, that we can't side with him in any mm-hmm. way, shape, or form. Yeah, I have a really strong theory for that. It's going to come out next week. Next week. Well, I'm <laughs> teasing people here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think I believe that there is a reason. I think all of this does make sense. Yeah. Um, it doesn't now as we're highlighting all the differences deliberately to throw everything into a tailspin, but I do think that there is a very sensical approach to not only harmonizing these, but showing the value of appreciating the differences. And by harmonizing, you don't mean lining them up so that they all fit together. Chronologically, no. Chronologically, or that they even um, complement each other necessarily. So that they're saying the same Same thing. thing. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And not even saying the same thing, but one is building on the other. Yeah. No, They're taking sense. a stronger and a stronger stance yeah. about one particular thing. So, we're moving right along. We are. We're on the last page notes, right? Yeah, we are. So, John 13, uh, chapter, or chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. (laughs) Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Oh, there's so much imagery. (laughs) It's so powerful. So Jesus serves communion to Judas, and Satan enters him through communion. How's that for a Sunday morning message? Would you be able to preach that? Just weave that into the communion service next month. I'll be like, just be careful as you eat the bread and drink the cup. I'm not Jesus. Satan might enter you. Seriously, though, this takes it to a whole nother level. This is where it really takes a whole crazy turn. And almost like a mystical, um, yeah, mystical turn. It's more of a, uh, like, Frank Peretti kind of evil Mm -hmm. is fighting in the background. Mm -hmm. And... Even, I mean, the, the thing that, as you were reading that point out, that jumped out to me was the fact that um, you have Simon Peter and he's, he's leaning his back against Jesus. Mm-hmm. So that picture, again, of people le- reclining yep. at the table isn't what we would normally picture as maybe feet first towards the table if we finish dinner and we're just relaxing. Mm-hmm. It's um, torso forward, feet back away from the yep. table back-to-back with people. Yeah, and you can imagine G- uh, Peter kind of leaning back against Jesus, using Jesus' body weight, turning his head yeah. and whispering to him. Who, who is it? Yeah, and maybe you've never pictured the table like that, but that's what they're doing. So Peter leans back against him and is like, 
who are you talking about? Yeah. I'm going to cut his head off. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, because Peter um, shows us in the garden that he's not afraid to swing a sword. So. Yeah. And, and, and the way that the story has evolved through the, mm-hmm. with John is now Jesus is feeding Judas. Mm-hmm. It's not like, hey, any of you here might be the one, like Mark says. They're all sharing from the same bowl. Anybody in my proximity is going to betray me. Yeah. Now Jesus is saying, watch me dip this in here. And whoever I give this to is the one that has to betray me. It's kind of like drawing the short stick or something. It is. this. So again, this is where those Gnostic ideas kind of take root. Yeah. Because there is something to be said. Jesus is doing something here. Um, I wouldn't argue that he's <laughs> doing what it appears that he's, he's doing. He's causing Satan to possess yeah. somebody. I think that there's a, a deeper, longer narrative happening that's yeah. playing out. Um, so again, but that's next episode. That's next episode. So right now we have to kind of deal with some of the mystery, but I think it's interesting. And one of the things I've always wrestled with is if Jesus tells somebody it's going to be whoever I give this to, and then he gives it to him, wouldn't everybody at the table jump on that dude and be like, "What the hell, dude? (laughs) (laughs) You were going to betray Jesus?" But at the end, they're like, "Oh, so he's probably just going out to give money to the poor, maybe, or buy stuff for the feast." It shows, yeah. So the context clearly proves that Jesus did not actually say in front of everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because somebody would have tried to stop him. Instead, they're all confused about it. Like so, Jesus is sending now yep. Judas to do something good. Yep. So this is where context helps check, keep us balanced. Yeah. Um, because right there, the context checks us, and it says, Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So immediately after he tells somebody, It's whoever I give this bread to, nobody knows what's happening. Yeah. So... Again, context adds so much. Yeah. And it forces us to say, well, then what was he saying? Why is that in there then? It's not that you discredit it and say, well, <laughs> the author made a mistake. Yeah. No, there's there's something deep going on. So we've got like kind of four different views. Or no, we got the first one there. The comment- <laughs> first one isn't a view. <laughs> <laughs> it's too weak. <laughs> um, the common evangelical view of Judas. Yeah. Like when we talk about Judas, we're all, we, it's always linked to betrayal. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't see much of him early on in any of the Gospels. Um, so the evangelical, the common view that I would say 99.7, just to be safe, mm-hmm. of the evangelical pastors and churches out there would be this idea that Judas was predestined to betray Jesus in order to fulfill prophecy. So why ask the questions? Judas was doing his job. Yep. Salvation would not be possible without Judas mm-hmm. doing what he had to do. Yep. And they're going to try and harmonize everything. So they'll try and make the puzzle pieces fit together with blunt force if necessary. Yeah. Um, and they may not use the predestination language, but even like the charismatic Armenian circles that I've been a part of in the past would still say that if you said, well, what, what is Judas doing? They'd say, well, he is playing a part in God's plan of salvation. He's doing what is needed to be done. Because that predestination language can throw people off. Mm -hmm. Not all of them would say that he had to, had no choice, but a lot of them would say it needed to happen. So somebody had to do it. 
and almost everybody agrees, partly because the text says that Jesus knows ahead of time, that Jesus saw this all coming, and he's cool, calm, and collected as he prepares for Judas. Like It's almost like there's a game of poker, and Jesus sees everybody's cards. Yeah. The only thing that's detrimental about that is it takes away the, the sting of betrayal. We're supposed to feel the betrayal. Here's one of Jesus' closest disciples. So the common evangelical view actually creates bad literature. Yeah. Because it doesn't let us actually feel that sting. It, it, it justifies the betrayal almost. It's, it's almost like... Yeah. Jesus the ends justify the means or something. Jesus knew it was going to be happening, so he's not hurt by this in any way, shape, or form because he knows that the ends justify the means. Mm-hmm. That's a scary place to go with scripture sometimes. When the ends justify the means. Yeah. I mean, many war has been fought. (laughs) (laughs) It is true. So then there's the greed view. Um, Mother Teresa takes this view. She says, I fear just one thing. Money. Greed was what motivated Judas to sell Jesus. Mother Teresa. And then there's language in the Gospels that lend to that. John, particularly, yeah. yeah. The thief, he he was keeping money for himself. Mm -hmm. So he found another way to make 30 extra denarii, so he's going to do it. $30,000. That's a lot of money. The next one is one of my favorite ones. We discussed this before the podcast. It's the Gnostic view. This idea of what? Secret knowledge. Yeah. This idea that there are gospels out there and literature out there that you have to be part of the inclusive group to understand. Yep. If you, if, if you know the right creeds and you read passages in a certain way and you get the perfect theology, then you will be one of... One of the few knowledgeable ones. Yeah. Gnostic means... Gnostic comes from the word gnosis, knowledge. knowledge. So the Gnostic group was all about there is some knowledge. If you obtain it, then yeah. you will be close to God. And the Gnostic, Gnostic view of this is that Jesus and Judas may have been in... Could leak together. Yeah. Like Jesus and Judas has had 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 a meeting and said this is what needs to happen. You're mm-hmm. the trusted one that can do this. Yeah, so the Discovery Channel, because they're terrible at all things Bible, um, <laughs> ran a special on this and I watched part of it before throwing things and turning it off. So the Gnostic view or the Gospel of Judas, um, they paint this picture that Judas is the only one of the apostles that knows what Jesus is up to. And that he sees that salvation can only come to people if Jesus dies and his blood is shed. And so somebody has to do the deed. Somebody has to fulfill the prophecy. And he hates to do it. It's his best friend. But Jesus has charged him with this because he's his best friend and says, you have to do it. You have to betray me, Judas. Nobody else will. And... So there's all this context that they add. There's like the scene with Peter where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You know, don't convince me that I'm not going to die. I have to die. Yeah. And so it's almost like he's feeling, feeling Peter out to see if Peter can be that friend and Peter can't. Yeah. Peter says, I'll die with you. I'll fight. You know, I'm not going to let you die. Judas, however, is... He's part of the Gnosis group. He knows. He's one of the secret society. Yep. The so, yeah, he knows. so then Jesus confides in him, this is what must happen. And there's language that lends to that. Whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Um, and even in the Gospel of John where he, he gives him the morsel. 
Yeah. Hey, this is the sign to go. Go do yep. it now. As if he didn't have enough power on his own, Jesus imparts Satan onto Satan, him. Yeah. <laughs> if you can't do it on your own, here's the devil. <laughs> yep. So the problem with the Gnostics that I have is that they're a very inclusive text. Yep. So they turn Christianity into something that is about the next life and something that is very... You have to know certain things and do certain things. It's almost on par of like numerology or something like that. Like if you read the yeah. Bible in certain ways, you see numbers and yeah. patterns and only the certain group of people can understand what's going yeah. on. And I was thinking evangelicalism too. Oh, well, yeah. You, <laughs> you throw like the rapture and left behind yeah. there. And you have to know these the, certain things and say these certain, certain creeds. Yeah. That's kind of what the Gnostic movement was, whereas Christianity on the whole was more about we're this world movement. We need to feed the poor. We need to tell people that Jesus is king over all this earth and that if you want to be a part of his kingdom, you need to get in line because he's coming back. Which is why I lean more towards out of the four or five things that we're talking about today is the political view of Judas's movement. It's close, but... That's where I, that's where I look to... Yeah. That's where I lean towards the most out of all of them. The political yeah. view being that Judas and presumably, like you said, his father were members of the... Sakari? Sakari. I've only had two drinks. <laughs> Sakari or the Dagger Men, and they found out that Jesus wasn't there to overthrow Rome. So he's no good to them anymore. He's yep. more of a detriment to them. Yep. They had hopes for him. They they sent uh, Judas in to scout out if he was going to be the Messiah, if he had what it takes to fight Rome. And he doesn't. No. Not the way they want to fight Rome. It's like no. almost like the Manchurian candidate. It's mm-hmm. like he's, he doesn't... He doesn't He's not the one yep. that we need. Yeah. So Josephus writes a lot about the Sakari, and they're scary dudes. So they would go into a crowd during the feast. So the temple's not that big. Yeah. Um, and they're packing multiple thousands of people into it. And what would happen is during a big feast, if the Sakari found out that you were somehow benefiting from the Roman occupation... Be it you are a blacksmith and you decide, you know, I need a little extra money, so I'm going to reforge a couple of Roman swords. Or a tax collector yep. you're working for. Yep, exactly. Yeah. You're in the crowd. You're giving your offering. You're talking to a rabbi to hear his take on so-and-so or the latest Messiah figure that's trying to gain prestige. Variety, yeah. yeah. So you're just there. You're at church on a Sunday afternoon, essentially. Um, after the message and then somebody walks up yeah you're at the church potluck somebody walks up to you in a cloak with a dagger and slices through and kills you instantly and then throws their knife back into their cloak disappears into the crowd have you ever played assassin's creed no that's what it sounds like to you yeah so that's what this is this is what the sakari were so was judas a sakari secret agent of Within, yeah, within Jesus's. So there is, there's a link in the language there between Sakari and Iscariot. Yeah, that's possible. But so those are four of the leading views, and they all, I think, we would agree, they're kind of misguided and short-sighted. Yep, not looking at the broad picture. But if you have this, if you have one of the views, we won't call the evangelical view a view. So if you have one of these three views, either the greed view or the Gnostic view or the political view, we applaud you because you've actually studied a little bit Yeah, you're, versus yeah. just 
Oh, yeah, Judas. He's the guy that betrays Jesus. Let's not think about it. So are we saying that we're Gnostic because we have insight that nobody else has? No. no. I'm, we, I'm not. Right. Facetious. Oh. <laughs> but, um, what, but what we're saying is you're not taking it at the, this is what I've been told. I'm not going to read it myself. Because when we read through all of the accounts of Judas, mm-hmm. we see things that don't harmonize well together. Mm-hmm. That should push us to look into it more. Yeah. Instead of not asking the questions, it should prompt us to ask the questions. Mm-hmm. Um, we see we see him evolve as the gospels get older, and as um, they're trying, as the authors are trying to tell us more of their own personal theology. I think as well. Yeah. So. What are we going to cover in episode two then? I mean, that, I mean, part two. What I think. <laughs> this no. is what Dan thinks about it. But, it, but what we hope happened is that no. you're not leaving today with answers, more of a, of a I want to dive into some looking into it myself. I'd like there to be a little bit of unsettledness or hopefully curiosity. Yeah. Especially if, especially if you do hold the common evangelical view of Judas dis- was predestined to do yeah. it. Because that doesn't harmonize with yeah. the stories. Yeah, and so uh, here's the the preview of the next episode is that I believe Judas, so we usually don't relate to Judas. Yeah. If you're a pastor on any given Sunday, you usually use Peter's denial to convict people. Have you <laughs> denied Christ? Have you been in an, an alley or at a bar and denied him? What were you doing <laughs> in alleys and bars? Yeah. So... That's typically who we use to relate yeah. during Holy Week. So Christians generally fall in line with Peter, who's not such a bad guy, but he just, just when no push came to shove, yeah. he didn't tell his neighbor about Jesus. Yeah. So that's generally where we go. I think that's short-sighted, and I think that it's not challenging enough. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of Judases within the church, um, and I think that we all can relate to him on one level or another. And so the whole premise of the view that I have about Judas is that he's more like us than we imagine. And, more human? Yeah. Well, um, and Satan. Yeah. But that has a whole different meaning. <laughs> so that's my thoughts. So hopefully you'll join us for the second part of this, which should come out in a week or so. Yeah. Probably a week after this one launches, we'll record um, the next one. But Dan, we, we both picked ciders this today. Dan's on some keto diet. I've been doing keto, and I think I went over my carb count because I'm on my second one of these. I don't care about carbs, so I'm not counting them. <laughs> but what are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking Painted Turtle Hard Cider, uh, which is actually made in Lowell, Michigan, Ooh. just like 10 miles away from us. How, what do you think of it? It's really good. So I, I'm on my second one, like I said. I'll admit to that. The first one I drank their traditional uh, hard cider, and it was really good. It's not very vinegary if you're a cider lover yeah. that likes the vinegar. The next one I drank is very interesting, and I can imagine that some people wouldn't like it, but it's a Java vanilla cider. So it has the cider aspect, but it's got Java and kind vanilla like a flavor. almost. It does have a little bit of the porter flavor. It's like a porter and a cider got in bed together. (laughs) I'm drinking today from um, Blake's Hard Cider, the Grizzly Pear, which underneath it says says it's made with pears, not bears. 
It's um, good, though. It is really good. It's infused with elderberry as well. And I also had two. Mine were not as big as Dan's. I'm just going to put that out there. Charith, he drank more than me this time. Um, so, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I've, I had a six-pack of this at home and brought these with me today. Um, gluten-free, which is always good. Mm-hmm. But I guess this is um, cider and Bible today instead of beers and Bible. But um, we thank you for joining us, and um, we will hopefully um, you will listen to us in the next one. So we'll see you guys later. Yep, thanks.